QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Angela Higginson. Ange is an associate professor in the School of Justice at QUT. She recently received the ARC Discovery Early Career Research Award, or DECRA, for her project looking at youth experiences of hate crime in Australia. In this episode, Jody and Ange discuss several things, including being a statistics nerd, the importance of kindness, and how it's okay to try things out as you navigate your career path. They also discuss Ange's current research on hate crime. None of these descriptions are graphic or detailed, but there is a discussion of how hard some young people have it and how it could be difficult as a researcher to work in this space, hearing these stories. On a personal note, and I don't know if she knows this, but Ange was instrumental in me feeling confident enough to get my PhD project through the QUT ethics process. I started writing my ethics application with an overwhelming sense of dread that they were going to straight up reject it. Ange helped me realise that as long as I took some reasonable steps and addressed any concerns the committee brought up, I'd be fine. She was kind, pragmatic and took time out of her day to chat to me for over an hour when I'm sure she had a hundred other things to do. Without any further ado, Angela Higginson. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? Hi, I'm Angela Higginson. I am an Associate Professor in the School of Justice. What does that mean? Uh, That means that at the moment that I do a combination of research and lecturing and some service roles around the university. Yeah, so it's it's all the same work as the lecturers, the senior lecturers, the professors do, but just at different levels. And you recently had a big fancy research grant. Oh, I did indeed. Tell us about that. Okay, so the big fancy research grant was an ARC DECRA. And for those of you who have not had to go through that torture, that is an Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Research Award, D-E-C-R-A. Something. Yeah, I think that's it. And basically that means that you get three or so years to basically delve into one big-ass problem. And in my case, I was looking at youth hate crime. And so I spent the last few years just on a research only doing that. Why are you interested in youth hate crime? That's a really good question. Sort of partly grew out of just... I suppose part of the thing with an academic workload or an academic life is that you're building, as you know... One piece of research leads to the next question you want to ask, leads to the next question you want to ask. So I actually started doing research around hate crime, not as the researcher per se, but as the supervisor for a student who was doing their research around hate crime. And we've collaborated and stuff over the years, and she's now a grown-up researcher all of her own. Yeah, so sort of got an interest in it that way. And then when it was time to apply for the big fellowship, 
it was really a question of asking myself, what did I actually want to spend three years of my life on? And I thought that would be pretty valuable. What was the big question? Uh, the big question it comes from a lot of things. Basically, we've got rubbish data in Australia and everywhere about the experiences of young people and hate crime. And so when I'm talking about hate crime, I'm talking about being verbally abused or being physically assaulted because of an element of someone's uh, identity that they just can't alter. So obviously that experience for someone is highly problematic and I think it's even more problematic if you're a teenager in that midst of finding out who the hell you are and where your identity fits and who's included and who's excluded and what does this mean about where you fit in this country and at the time that I was putting the application together for the fellowship uh, it was not long after Donald Trump had come into power we had right wing oh, of course in many countries still do, but we had right-wing uh, governments across the board and with a really pretty racist agenda and things were getting worse for young people. So I just wanted to, I suppose, start by capturing how much of it was going on mm -hmm. and who was experiencing it most and if there was anything that could be protective around those experiences and what are the consequences of it as well? Like, you know, if, if you're experiencing victimisation, especially if it's regular and it's around something you can't possibly change, how does that impact how you feel about your place in the world? So all of that together was why that project interested me. And did you actually talk to young people? I surveyed young people, so I didn't interview young people. Instead, I went the breadth rather than I suppose the lived experience depth so I, I've done two rounds and I'm soon doing a third of what I have called the Australian Youth Safety Survey so basically that's surveying young people who were aged between 14 and 25 and asking them about their experiences of a whole range of things and so not just about hate crime but their lives really quite broadly and so the first wave we got I got about a bit over 3,000 young people Ooh. responded. And it's like a big survey. So it's like, takes you, well, I mean, you can get through it quickly if nothing bad's ever happened to you. You yeah. can probably be in and out in about 15 minutes. But if stuff has, you can be there for a while. So let's say 45 minutes of your life is spent, you know, answering the questions and and then giving me a little bit of a, a taste, I suppose, at the end of... The last question in the survey is basically one of those, is there anything else you'd like to tell me? It's, there's some stuff that's really quite heartbreaking, things that young people want to tell you about what their experiences have been like. So got that survey, got about 1,500, 1,400 off the next round. I think everyone's pretty tired of being surveyed and tired of being on their computers. And the next round goes out later in this year. We're doing some in New Zealand with some colleagues of mine going to be doing a New Zealand youth safety survey in the, towards the end of the year. Amazing. <laughs> so I, I didn't actually talk to anyone, no, no, but I mean, I listened to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Were you expecting to get those kinds of numbers? No, no. I was hoping that I'd get 2,000 off one survey. I, I didn't really expect it to drop quite so low, but I also didn't expect a pandemic to come and, you know, mess with everything. So no, when I put in my initial applications, I was like saying 1,800 people, but I also thought that I would be doing the, the research in schools because I'd talk to people within the education department and they're like, oh yeah, this sounds really good, let's do this. But when it actually came time to give approval, the education department didn't think that it was relevant enough to education 
department to approve the huh. research. Yeah. What is that about? Yeah. They, they thought the research was really important, but it just didn't have enough of a school focus, apparently. Yeah, right. And, you know, they, their students get surveyed to death. Yeah. Yeah, we're constantly trying to get information out of them. So they declined and I had to switch to plan B. Why do you think young people were so on board with it? I think I think it might be a, a generational thing to a certain extent. There's a lot of openness and a lot of honesty from the young people who are, are answering, but also in my experience of just young people in general, there are really, the ones I know, a really open cohort of people. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them to tell you about their experiences of, how did I phrase it? Um, well, I mean, it's youth safety survey. It was phrased around, tell us your experiences of identity, diversity and conflict or identity, safety and... I think it's identity, diversity and conflict. And so so it was through a social media advertising. I paid for a lot of advertising. And something like one in 1,200 young people in Australia took part in the survey. Yeah, so it's massive, massive numbers of, of people who took part in it. But I think that the reason is just to... Everyone wants to be heard, and if if it's tapping the right kind of thing that you feel affects you at that time, and identity, that's something that affects young people hugely. Conflict, diversity, those are the kinds of framing words that were used, yeah. What did you learn? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm still learning from it, actually. I certainly haven't finished it. Some of the things that stood out is just, just how much prejudice motivated victimization occurs so from the young people that answered and it's important I think when framing that kind of percentage it's important to know that I never framed it as being around hate crime so I wasn't asking them you know come do the survey about hate crime and your experience of being victimized because of your identity but I did frame it around identity so there's always there's no such thing as a random sample when you're doing social media research. However, coming back, what did I learn? That something like 40% of young people say that they'd been victimised as a result of, you know, verbally abused as a result of their identity, that it's that, it, that a lot of the identity markers... I was expecting... I went into the project looking at ethnically motivated hate crime but opened up the questions more broadly than that across a wide range of identity questions. Did what you find surprise you? Yeah, some of the stuff that I found surprised me, yeah. There's a similar survey that had been done in schools internationally. So in a sense, there's a way of being able to go, is our experience all that different from the experience we see elsewhere? And I added some questions to break things down a little bit. One of the things that I found is that we've got about 7% of the young people who answered the survey said that they'd been violently attacked as a result of something to do with their identity. And off the top of my head, about 60% of those young people were because of their gender or sexuality. Mm. About 40% of them would be because of their ethnicity or the language they're speaking or the colour of their skin. So I suppose that prevalence is pretty high. And that's for being violently attacked for... The thing that surprised me was the verbal abuse was much, much higher. That's that's incredibly common. And then you ask the, the young people how 
who say, yes, it has happened to me. How often has it happened in the last year? And some of them are just giving you numbers that are like every day. This is just an everyday experience. And it's just, yeah. But I suppose the other main thing that probably surprised me is when I look through that last question about is there anything else you want to tell me? One of the things that really surprised me is at the beginning of the survey, I ask people what was the sex that was recorded at birth? Yeah, what sex were they assigned at birth? What was on their birth certificate? And then I ask them just an open-ended question, uh, what's your current gender identity? And as I said, this survey takes between like 15 minutes and 45 minutes to do. You get all the way to the end of the survey and you get a bunch of people who do want to tell me something about how they think about identity and they want to tell me that they really object to the fact that I've asked questions about gender in that way and the number of young people who want to just adamantly tell me I'm an idiot because there are only two genders is just like I was face palming quite badly wow. yeah so I've got not only do I have the people who are victimized I've also got people in there who say that they have you know victimized other people and then there's this yeah, there's, there's a real thread of prejudice coming through some of the young people's responses as well. There's some really derogatory racist stuff at the end of the survey that I wasn't expecting. Generally speaking, the vast majority of the young people who uh, participated did seem very thoughtful and caring about how they responded. But there was that surprising thread that wasn't so sweet. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we kind of think that homophobia and transphobia and these things aren't things anymore right? mm. because the new generation is so onto it and yeah. everyone knows a trans kid and it's interesting to see that come out in a voluntary question. Yeah, absolutely. And because you know, the the gender diversity and the diversity of sexuality with this, this group of young people and they're you know, 14 to 25, so they're sort of bit of a crossover generationally but it's a pretty wide group they're incredibly diverse there's it's they're not just going you know most of us are uh, identifying as male and most of us are identifying as female with just a small bunch of people where you could just tick a box other and go well that's fine there's only a small percentage it's like big numbers I don't have them on hand I wish I did that's okay but yeah they're they're extraordinarily diverse but then at the same time we've got a bunch of young people who find that really threatening it seems that there is that diversity I mean to be that upset that I asked a question half an hour ago I've asked lots of other questions since you know that one's the one that sticks in the head I find that really interesting so what do you hope this research will achieve (sighs) a bit of kindness bit of kindness is always nice a bit of understanding um i think that there's a lot of possibilities for and and some of these analyses i've done and some of these analyses i haven't yet done because it's a massive data set and it's going to keep me busy for quite some time but to look at to try to identify what kinds of things are protective like you know we know that this is happening to a wide range of young people and some of them experience much worse consequences than others do some of them feel unattached from society they feel depressed they feel you know very negatively about themselves and some of them don't in order to sort of see what kind of protective factors there are that we can maybe help to boost I want to talk about because I think that 
Is there not a big difference between a 14-year-old and a 24-year-old? Oh, I hope so, yes. Yeah. Why include that kind of 18 to 24-year-old group? Surely they're grown-ups. I mean, some of them will be married and have kids and be doing the career gig and, like... Absolutely. Uh, That's a really good question. So when I first framed this, I framed it as 12 to 16 year olds. And then because I was no longer able to go into schools to do it, and it was a social media thing. So there were few, there was fewer levels of oversight about young people's capacity and, and support and all of that. I was able to take it to 14 year olds and figured that, well, while I'm here, I wonder how the young adults are doing as well. Because some of the questions I'm asking are about what's happened to you in the last year and some of them are about what's ever happened to you in your life. So I can still find out what impacts those things have had. The other reason for having a wide range age range is, of course, this is a survey I want to do every year or so. And so a lot of the young people have opted in to be contacted to do it again. So quite large numbers of the most recent survey went, yep, sure, you can get in touch and we can do this one more time. And so if I keep doing that, then they're going to get older. And ideally, I can follow them through and see how those earlier problems or, you know, they may have had no problems to date and next year's the bad year for them and see how they turn out the year after, the year after that, if they'll have me and if they'll answer my questions. That's a great longitudinal study there. Yeah, it's hard to make sure you get exactly the same young people, but we have a few hundred, I think there's about three to four hundred of them from the first wave are still in the second wave, so maybe they'll come back for a third wave. That's a pretty great number though. It could be bigger. Could always be bigger. <laughs> I mean, sure, it could always be bigger, but, but it could always be smaller too. Yeah, so yeah, right. yeah, I'm I'm not upset right. about it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, how long have you been an academic? I started my PhD in 2007, end of 2007. I've been working. I graduated PhD in 2012. But I'd been working as a research fellow for a year or so before that. I'm going to peg like 2011 as the start, I suppose. So what's that? 11 years. Yeah, right. That's not that long. No, it's totally, it's like a baby academic. Absolutely. You've done exceptionally well to where you are. (laughs) Well, that wasn't what I meant, but yeah, thank you. I'll take that. Why the hell not? Why the heck not? (laughs) What made you decide to do a PhD? Oh, because I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I did it as well. Yeah? Yeah, cool. I mean, you know, like, my last name is Death. Like, Dr. Death was just too good to pass Yeah, oh, I mean, you can't not have that, right? You can't right? not have that, right? And there was no way I was doing medicine. <laughs> I also didn't like the whole idea of being... I don't like gendered titles very much, yeah. so I quite like having doctor yeah, instead yeah. of... Although I occasionally get students will still send me emails, Dear Miss Higginson, it's like... Not into it. Nah. No. Let's have a little chat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I wanted to be a doctor. It felt almost inevitable uh, okay. which is weird because I mean it was it was a long time coming but yeah so like you just went like straight from high school into <laughs> a solid career path oh right? yeah totally totally I went straight from high school into the idea that I was going to become a barrister and so I started a law degree that I dropped out of after about three months I didn't bother to tell the university I dropped out <laughs> of anything so I was excluded and then year later or so I thought oh yeah maybe I'll give that another shot and went into an arts degree 
and then dropped out and didn't bother to tell anyone because I clearly learned from my own personal mistakes. You have to write a letter, big, big explanatory letter about why you should be allowed back into the university. I did that, I think I've been excluded three times, all on the basis of just never bothering to show up. Wow. I had a misspent youth. It was great fun, but it wasn't well organised. But, like, I'm gobsmacked at this <laughs> like, you're like, you're like a, a grown-up... Human. I am a grown-up human. So. How, how did you, I mean, I, I, how do you even get back into university after being excluded for three times? You write another letter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, that was it. So, uh, yeah, I went to UQ. I tried a couple of times. I think there might have been one semester where I actually dropped out in time, so it may only be twice. But when I went for my... I went for an interview to do a PhD uh, with the people who did turn out to be my PhD supervisors. So at the time I had finished my undergraduate degree, I'd taken what I thought was a six month job as a statistician in the fire service. I then turned out I was there for like four years and went, oh bugger, looked at my watch and went, I was meant to have finished my PhD by now, shit. So I had a colleague, a, a person a researcher from UQ who was working in the fire service at the time doing research with the firefighters and he's now a good mate of mine and he was like oh we've got a, a PhD scholarship going with some colleagues of mine you might want to go chat to them and so I went and chatted to the people who became my PhD supervisors and so it was like almost like a job interview it was a sort of an odd way of it often is if it's like an industry sponsored PhD scholarship as you're aware you don't have to apply to the university in the same way you apply to be part of a team so it's like a job interview and so you go there with all your pieces of paper and they're looking at your academic transcript and at that point in time my academic transcript starts with the words excluded enrollment all faculties 1985 and then allowed to re-enroll whatever the formal words for that are 1986 excluded enrollment all faculties <laughs> it's like thank god when i went back i don't know about i went back when i was 27 so what was that maybe 10 years after i first gave it a shot and went back and went yeah i actually quite like this turns out i should never have been a lawyer i don't know what i was thinking yeah. I, I mean good for the lawyers but not for me uh, yeah, so then I went and I started doing a, a philosophy degree. So I have a Bachelor of Arts that has a double major in psychology and a single major in philosophy because I wanted to be a logician. But it turns out... What is a logician? Oh, a logician is someone who studies formal logics. And oh. that's great fun. So most of my philosophy undergrad is around logics, which is, you know, the formalisation of language and arguments. And it's that, mathematics of language. It's cool. like in the, like the university careers guy. Like, yeah, I don't think they've got much elephant logician. It is a real thing. My children at the time thought it was fantastic that their mum was going to grow up to be a magician. Yeah. Because, yeah. Magic is great. <laughs> yeah, magic's great. Logic's also great. <laughs> I did teach them to do formal logic in primary school. They do enjoy it. So... <laughs> Um, then I switched into psychology because I realised that if I wanted to be a logician, I was going to have to go overseas and by that time I was married with two small children and that wasn't really feeling plausible so I switched into psychology which I graduated with an honours in neuropsych so I did concussion research for my honours degree so that was fun then I went to be a statistician for a while then I came back to do applied statistics and criminology but 
at the end of the day, about six months before I submitted my thesis, UQ made the decision that you were no longer allowed to double brand your PhD. So I had to make a choice between was my PhD in applied statistics and probability or was my PhD in criminology. And I chose to become a criminologist Why instead. Why did you chose to become a criminologist? Because I love numbers and I love big data sets, but criminology is just really, really interesting. Isn't it? Like, you, I can still do the big numbers on the really interesting topics, whereas if I become purely a methodologist, then I may end up in areas I just don't think are as interesting. Yeah, so but, what, yeah, it is fascinating. What would have been the difference in your career progression? Uh, so at the time, there were a couple of job options, one of which, where I went off to become a criminologist, I started working on systematic reviews around the effectiveness of policing or otherwise, what things backfire, what things work. Uh, so that's where I did go. But my other options were working with large data sets to look at employment questions, sociological questions more broadly, but it probably would have been a bit of a mix of a mixed bag. Probably more contract research, yeah, which right. is less appealing. That is less appealing. I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who the hell does? Like any of us, really. <laughs> so... When you decided that you're going to do criminology, though, because criminology is, like, really interesting. It is. It's totally cool. Was there a particular gig that you're interested in, like a particular problem? At the time, so the PhD that I was doing was, like I said, it was applied statistics, applied probability and statistics. So it was an odd PhD. It Part of it was developing tools to look at performance management within the context of the Australian Federal Police and they were looking at resource allocation and various things like that. I will not go into that part because that's where people go to sleep. And the other part of my PhD was look, basically using a data set that came from the AFP to do that work but also to do some other fancy pants work and I was looking at fraud because they have a big data set of all of the people who were investigated for serious and complex fraud yeah. against the Commonwealth. So that's what I started on. But basically, I am a fickle creature and I find many things interesting. And so, yeah. I mean, that explains to me why people refer to you as a policing scholar at times. Yeah, yeah. I still do that, that work. I still do a lot of work around systematic reviews for policing effectiveness, for stuff around terrorism. But I tend to do the methodological stuff. Mm. So the terrorism stuff was the most recent examples. Yeah, so I do policing but work, but not... I, I don't do the primary research. Mm. I do the evidence synthesis part. So it's like, yeah, what's everyone else done and what's the real answer when you put it all together? So explain to me why all of this kind of came together after a kind of... Let's say unfocused <laughs> we could say unfocused it all seemed very focused at the time <laughs> did it oh yeah 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 go i'm going to go and start law that's not interesting i'm going to go and work in backstage in the theater for a while i'm okay that's that's fine now i'm going to have some children now i'm going to be a potter now I'm going up. I was a potter for a while quite <laughs> successfully. That was fun. Are you a successful potter? I, I've sold many, many things. That's amazing, yeah. Ange. <laughs> I actually also have half of an advanced diploma in ceramics where I learnt to throw very 
big, big pieces of pottery. But I didn't finish that either. So, you know, apparently it took me until, yeah, being sort of mid-30s to be a sensible human creature who finishes things properly. How do you feel about that now? I am in two minds about it. Part of me goes, my God, if I'd just been a lawyer when I started, which was... 1985, before Hex came in, I would have been a lawyer for free. I mean, I'd probably just get want to drown myself, but I, I would have been a lawyer and possibly successful. I'd probably have a better house. And the other part was, my God, I've had fun. Yeah. So, you know, you can change your mind. You don't need to know what you want to be when you grow up from the outset. Do you yeah. think that young people can still change their mind? Oh, good God, yes. Yeah. That's one of the things I love about universities, actually, is that it's it's the ultimate reset. Because you you think about yourself on paper, right? Like a a resume, and if the la- if the most recent thing you've got is graduated, blah blah blah. Well, no one's allowed to have your date of birth on there anymore. You can just not bother putting anything that came before that on your resume, and da da, you look like you're fresh as a daisy. You've reset. So. Yeah, I, I think you can change your mind. Everything you do brings a new skill set. Like, I don't need to have super strong thumbs in my day-to-day existence. Of th- I don't need to throw pots, but I don't know. I think there's a meditative element from that that I've managed to keep. And So I guess for the young people out there that are like, I don't really know if this is what I want to do with my life. I don't really have a game plan. What would you say to them? I think that's a perfectly reasonable stance. I'm still not entirely sure. And I think when you ask a lot of people, they're not entirely sure if what they're doing is necessarily what they're going to stay doing for, I mean, for how long? It's not the 1950s. You don't start a career and stay there till you retire in the same job. You get a lot of you get a lot of reset points, I suppose. But I, I certainly, I don't know, from my own personal <laughs> there's a, a an expression which just sounds so gross but I love it which is if it tastes bad spit it out if you're yeah. really not enjoying what you're doing you need to think seriously about is this the thing that you should be doing I, I had a friend when I was young who was a lawyer so she was 25 gorgeous successful had fabulous outfits she hated being a lawyer but she'd started being a lawyer And so she stayed being a lawyer because she was now a lawyer. And I think it took her quite some time to come to terms with the fact that she despised that job. I know I sound like I'm bagging out on lawyers. It's just not a job for me. I mean, but it wasn't for her either. Like I think that, like, had you been a lawyer, you probably would have been some excellent advocate of whatever disadvantaged group. I like, like that. I love that idea. I hope that that would have been true. But or maybe also, there's like the evil flip side that I turn into some sort of corporate <laughs> lawyer. I know, just I can screwing. See corporate lawyer <laughs> showing up in your flowy pants. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I am not wearing a suit. I think that's kind of the point, though, that like it's really about what fits you and what brings you joy and sometimes we just don't know that off the bat yeah absolutely and look I'm not dismissing the fact that sometimes you have to do really shit jobs because you still do need to eat and I have done many many a shit job prior to prior to the turn of the millennia my my job history is a little odd so yeah I'm certainly not going 
oh, you know, the world is your oyster. Just drop what you're doing and follow your dreams. Like, well, if you can, fantastic. And, but I think that if you're seriously not loving where you are, there's always a way to make a step sideways. There's always a series of steps that you can make. That just sounds twee, though, doesn't it? Well, I mean, is there not a need for a level of, I guess, courage or initiative in that that's hard to muster in really uncertain times? Yeah, and you don't want to starve and die, and, you know, rent's getting ridiculous, so you probably do need to stick with your day job and all of that kind of stuff. And it does take a big, brave step. So you do need to plan your big steps, I think, and make sure that you'll still be able to eat. I think I was accidentally telling people that they should just stay with what they're doing and so they can eat. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the the point is that, like, it is difficult to figure it out and a lot of us are just making it up as we go along, right? Absolutely. I think that anyone who knows what they want to do and actually does it the whole way through is is very impressive. And I do know a couple of people like that, but I also know a lot of people who've had multiple careers. You know, you've had another job before you had this job. This, Yeah, you didn't hatch this way. So you tried something else out and presumably yeah. you didn't like what you were doing. Look, I mean, I loved child protection and I loved the crisis response work and sexual violence that I did and I in some ways loved those jobs more than I loved this job. Ah, so why did you go here when you loved that? I love that you're asking reciprocal questions. <laughs> now I want to know. I think it's a, a kind of a combination of in child protection there are structural and institutional issues that make the work really difficult. I loved the front-facing family work, I loved doing risk assessments, I loved, I guess, engaging with people around that with the hopes of making kids' lives better. But the politics of any institution, for me, is either what makes it or breaks it. Yeah. I think with academia, I have more freedom and flexibility, and yeah. let's be honest, about twice as much money yeah, yeah, as I had in child protection. And that, I guess, the difference is reframing how does what I do make a difference now, Yeah, as opposed to, you know, it's easy, I say all the time, it's easy. When you go out, you remove a child, you take them out of the immediate risk of harm scenario, you know, they're no longer going to be directly damaged in a parenting circumstance and you put them in foster care and hope for the best mm. in recognition that maybe it won't be the best, but... But you knew where they were coming from. They're out of immediate risk of harm and there's a whole layer of problems in that mm. in and of itself. But here in the work that we do, one of the things that I struggle with is this notion of, well, what good does my work actually do? And that's where... I also struggle with the introduction into academia of impact Oh, I was literally just thinking exactly the same thing. We have this framework where we need to demonstrate the impact of our work. Now, if I'm working in medicine, damn, that's easy if I've created a new drug. Yeah. But it's how on earth, A, how, and B, what's your timeline? Yeah. You know, how long does it take for someone to read your work and then someone reads their work and then someone reads their work and then, oh, my God. Yeah. 
But I mean, also, I mean, like, I think academia is inherently in the business of knowledge production. Yeah. But one of the problems that we have in creating academia as a business model is that we then value some knowledges more than other knowledges. Mm -hmm. I think we've always valued some knowledges more than other knowledges. But now, you know, we have a previous government that's like, okay, well, we don't think social sciences is as valuable, so we're going to make it more expensive, so Mm -hmm. less people do them, because STEM is the way of the future. Whereas I think the knowledge that tells us that young people are experiencing hate crimes, the knowledge that tells us how sexual violence is perpetrated, the knowledge that tells us about the relationships that people have with each other, that's the social fabric that we need to understand, that science and engineering will never make sense without people. And social sciences is about people, right? Absolutely. I'm (laughs) nodding a lot. For those of you at home, I am nodding and quite entranced, to be honest. But yeah. And this is why I think I'm interested in talking to people about why they're here. Like, you've had so many career opportunities. Why are you still here after 10 years? Oh, God, I love this place. I, I I love the idea of a university. I love the idea that I get to think for a living. That is... I mean, man, that is massively privileged, right, to be able to be in that position. Uh, and, and you're right, you know, the job pays well and it's not an ivory tower. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's teaching, there's grading, there's there's a whole heap of things to be done. But I love the fact that essentially we are about thinking, mm-hmm. about finding new ways of thinking, about finding out new things. And I can't think of a job that I would rather have than that. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a bit sad to think about, you know, the way that we get graded on our jobs sometimes around those sort of impact metrics feel very much at odds with that idea. I think I have a very romanticised idea of what a university is, but I think still, essentially, even in its sort of neoliberal guise, the essence of the people who are here doing the job, doing the researching, doing the teaching, telling people the things that they know, it's about thinking. Yeah. That and I can wear whatever the hell I want. I don't have to turn off at 9am. I <laughs> certainly don't have to clock in and clock out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I 100%, like I 100%, like the flexibility of the job is also one oh, of yeah. the things. That I, I can I, shave my head. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Well, at least they never told me they cared. So, you know. I mean, I also don't want to give the impression that, like, it's a walk in the park. Oh, my that. God, no. It's a lot of work. It is, it is a lot of work to actually managed apart from anything else just the juggling because Mm. the job is so multifaceted like the last few years it's been just research and service so within that in practice that's running big surveys uh doing presentations and and analyses and writing papers and and all of that kind of stuff so just that research work is a whole bunch in itself and on top of that I do service loads, so I do ethics reviews for other people's projects. So part of the service role then is looking at other people's research, and that is literal service, right? Like our job is to make sure, as an ethics committee, make sure that when Jody wants to do research, when Angela wants to do research, when anyone wants to do research and there are people on the other end of that research, that everyone's doing it carefully 
that no, that that we minimize any risk of harm that we don't screw up and mess up the lives of the people who are very generously giving us their information to use and so yeah i have that role to do i'm an editor for the crime and justice group for the campbell collaboration so i do a lot of editorial work i am now the co-chair of that organization which means i have the politics of yet another organization to deal with i have phd students i do guest lectures and presentations and blah 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 and so now that i'm no longer research only i'm doing all of that plus i'm teaching yeah. and so and that's what we all do. Like, that's that's not me. I'm not special. Everyone's exhausted. And we all have three jobs to do, plus all of the extra things that come in from external organisations. If you do any advocacy work, if you do any sitting on boards. Yeah. So the ethics gig seems to me to be something that you really love. I do. I do. I think it's massively important part of it is because it turns out i'm a really pedantic person for all my flippancy and (laughs) i am also extremely pedantic about doing things right and it's it's a really important role because there are human beings so even if you're not directly speaking to those human beings you have information about them and how you use that matters there's such a history within academia of really screwing up Mm. and there are big ways to screw up and there are little ways to screw up and yeah we take that job really really seriously of making sure that the researchers have thought very seriously about what they're doing yeah there is this notion though that ethics committees are really just a pedantic pain in the bum oh they are a pain in the bum i'm not disputing that you ever written one of those applications that's like years of your life gone i mean they're very big applications it's not literally years but it is weeks It is a lot. It is a lot. Before someone goes and does research with people, we need to know, we being the university more broadly, but the ethics committee as, you know, as that that role is instantiated, we need to know that they have thought about, when I go out to do my research and I speak to those people, is there any way I can hurt them? because they're they're giving me information about themselves. So I have to be careful. And so we want to see that researchers, A, know exactly what it is that they're going to do. And often for researchers, myself included, you you know what you want your project to be, and it's not until you're actually writing the very detailed protocol for your ethics application that you know step-by-step exactly what you're going to do. So it's useful. Yeah. So you're talking about the importance of considering human beings at the end of the research process but and i'm a professional and i've been doing this for 15 years now plenty of people are they can still mess it up though right you reckon i reckon (laughs) (laughs) i think we learn a lot from our peers i learn a lot from you you learn from me we all learn from each other and the ethics is just a bunch of people who get the job of just just double checking we're just going to make sure it's very uncommon for people to not have their research approved, but it does happen. Mm. There are times when someone has put forward an application where there is no merit in this, that is not worth putting the people through what you're about to put them through. You can't justify it. And so it's very rare that we will not give someone permission to do their research, but we're just there to make sure that they really have thought about it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I sat on the ethics committee for a long time and, I, like, I loved it. I loved the... It's fascinating it's, seeing what everyone's doing, yeah, right? Yeah, it really is. And seeing how 
different kind of disciplines within the social sciences or, thi or think about yeah. how they interact with people and the way that they construct things. I think it's really interesting. So where do you think this notion that ethics committees are just a pain in the butt comes from? Because the flip side of, you know, it's very, very rare that we ever tell someone that they can't do it. It's also very, very rare that we go, oh, that was a great application. Thanks. Off you go. Normally we'll have questions for them. And people who are academics, just like every other people, don't like being told that maybe they might want to think about, can, can you explain it a little better? We're not really sure that we understand exactly what you mean by this, or we're a little concerned about that. And people don't like to be critiqued by their peers. Maybe. Or maybe it is just because it literally is paperwork. <laughs> I mean, it is literally paperwork and also being critiqued by your peers just... But I just, well, no, I just, I feel like that's an academic's lie. Well, it's meant to be, yeah. Like, peer review is a thing, review of ethics applications is a thing. Publish a paper and have someone decide to talk about it in their next paper, yeah, that's a thing. That's totally... These a, are all things. Like, there's this level of scrutiny that happens in... At every layer. At every layer, which I, I think is really important. Yeah. But it's also, I think, a something that you have to deal with. Like, there's an emotional process or a intellectual or cognitive process that you go through with that? Some people take it really personally. Most people are, are pretty, you know, yep, I've been doing this for years, but, oh, yeah, good point. I probably didn't explain that well enough. This is what I meant. And then we turn around and go, yeah. Uh, I think that most people have found a way to deal with the critique that the job constantly has. I mean, I've done lots of different jobs. I've never felt so constantly critiqued. I, I don't actually take it personally, but, you know, at the end of every semester, students will tell me in vivid detail what they think of my work. Every time I want to put a paper up for publication, two or three reviewers plus an editor will tell me in great detail what they think of my work. Everyone will constantly... That's not a normal thing in a job, to get mm. critiqued like that. So you do need to... I think develop a pretty thick skin and recognise that everyone's in that boat. We're all mm. critiquing everybody. Just be nice. Mm. Just be nice about it. I think it comes back down to the what do you want and what kindness. Yeah. I just want some kindness. Like yep. you can tell me I haven't thought about something well, fine, just be nice about yeah. it. That's right. There's no need to be a dick. Yeah. What would be your advice, I guess, to people responding to ethics committees? recognise that the people at the other end only read what you wrote down and that if they have a question because they misunderstood you, that, well, they're not idiots. So, you know, maybe you didn't write it as clearly as you think that you did. You're much more familiar with your work than anyone else is going to be, which means that you're probably not as clear as you think that you are. Mm. But, yeah, chill. Just respond back. And, again, be nice. <laughs> Don't be a dick. <laughs> That's just going to be my motto for yeah, now. Just don't like don't be a dick. Be I nice. Don't feel be a like dick. I, mean, I have a shirt that says "Be a nice human." That's excellent. I, I like that. <laughs> like I just think that needs to be a mantra in life. Be a nice human. Yeah. So, in all of your glorious coming to this point in your academic career, do you have a favourite theorist theory body of work? <laughs> I'm not a fan of theory. I. Th yeah, I, I do not have a favourite theorist and primarily I think it's because the kind of work that I do I am much more inclined towards privileging what I'm seeing in empirical data 
I think a lot of theories are really interesting, but I'm always much more interested in what a data set is likely to be telling me. Is theory, though, not just a convenient way of organising knowledge? Totally is. I think you're absolutely right. That's, that's what it's good for. The problem I find is when we privilege it over empirical observation or if if I have a choice between here is the theory that tells me how x works and then I can go and talk to all the people and ask them you know hey how does this work for you and none of them come back and say anything like I'm not going to privilege the theory I'm always going to be more interested in how people put their worlds together I mean I'll use theories I suppose I'll test theories but I am happy to let the little darlings fall I think that's really interesting for someone who is so interested in logically organising the world <laughs> that you're also not at all interested in having a framework within which to do that solidly. That's an interesting way of looking at it. It is much easier to... Well, I mean, part of the whole positivist thing, I suppose, it's always much easier to falsify something, to, to turn around and demonstrate that something doesn't work than to demonstrate that something does work. Something only does work up until the point that we find the counterexample. Mm. Yeah, I suppose it's probably just because most of my work is, is heavily empirical that I'm just not really putting it terribly much. Like, I'll use theoretical frameworks as possible explanations, but they're not the area that I'm interested in. So it's not like I can avoid them completely, although part of me would just bloody love to, but obviously they are still ways of thinking. I mean, like, I totally get it, because the thing that I'm really interested in is what people say. Mm. And I don't necessarily always feel the need to go beyond what people say to providing some explanation yeah. of that. I think that point of just listening to what people have to say is a really valid academic pursuit. Absolutely. And I think it's always very important to know just how far you can go in drawing conclusions. Like I've seen some papers where very large conclusions are drawn from very small amounts of information and they seem like an overstretch. And I think, yeah, part of my own academic background is such that I'm very reluctant to go too far beyond, like, I'll, I'll hypothesise, but I'm very careful not to say this means that this is. Yeah, there's just a caution, I suppose, around, around deciding what it all means. I mean, I th like, I I mean think that's a big thing. It is a big thing, but it's one of the points of difference, I think, in how our brains work, is that numbers make no sense to me at all, and the big data sets make no sense to me at all. But those kind of... Like, the, the thing that I am interested in is the meaning around what people are saying and the mm. depth in what people are saying and finding spaces that, I guess can frame that but I think the framing of it the making sense of it is what institutions want us to do this is true and I think that the framing of it and the making sense of it is incredibly important mm. and I suppose that's when you ask me who's my you know what's my favorite theorist all that 
what theories do I use? I don't, but I also get to work in teams a lot. I get to work with other people who are more interested in the theoretical framework. So I get to do the parts that I think are great fun and try to figure out, you know, mathematically how it all fits together and here are the relationships that I can solidly assert to exist here and then with my colleagues go well what does that mean for the big picture does it knock anything down does it seem to build anything up and yeah but I suppose I I I start with no I don't really have a theorist terribly much blah blah because that's not the the small piece of the big puzzle that I spend my time in. and we that. all have just a small piece of a very big puzzle i totally love that because i just i could not ever do what you do like i just vice versa mate I, <laughs> I could not i did say to my beloved just yesterday i've discovered that there's enough space free in my brain now that i can now math like not complex math yeah but basic math nice which has nice. always been a different language <laughs> to me i feel like i can now basic math which is probably a sixth grade level math <laughs> certainly don't understand statistics What's your hot tips for students in surviving at university? Oh, God, ask for help. That's it. That's that's big one. Survival is the whole no man is an island, right? If things start screwing up, go tell someone. You don't have to disclose why, but let them know that you're struggling. If things are rough, talk to people. Every single lecturer that I know is a decent human being, and if you tell them that your life is falling apart, they will help you. So that's at the rough end of how to survive but also I think it's harder now with everything being offline so the whole social you know normally you go make friends with the people in your classes well that's bloody hard if you're all on zoom I don't know that I've got good advice for that because this is an unprecedented kind of spot these guys are in yeah how do you think we can listen to them better opening our ears by letting them know that we want to listen by yeah I suppose by telling them up front that we're just that we are willing to listen that if they have any problems that it's safe to come to us Mm. yeah by making it clear that we're their allies I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, guys, if you've got any input on how we can do it. Oh, yeah, better, please. Yeah. Like, you know, nicely tell us. Yeah, yeah, because like, I'm starting with, like, the best I've got is uh, I'll, I'll try to be nice and not be a dick. I mean, that's that's what everything's <laughs> going to come down to for me today. And maybe I should think more about theory. Should. I don't know. I'm totally, I accept it and I actually embrace that you do something that, like, I could never do and... You know, while I talk about the necessity of creating space and just listening, that and that making sense is what the institutions require us to do because then we want to know what we, how we respond to that. Like I feel like you doing what you do enables other people to do what they do, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And you know, don't it's stretch a, yourself, love. It's a symbiotic little it's a world, symbiotic isn't it? Little love. There's not little... enough going on. Yeah. No one can do everything. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Otherwise, there'd be like three academics. They'd know everything. Their little brains would explode. It'd be very traumatising. Oh. Imagine being their friend. How hard would that be? How hard would that be? Yeah, they know everything. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be their friend. I'd be scared. No, I'd feel very sad. (laughs) They're probably lovely, though. Uh, I love being your office buddy and I it's love the best. Uh, working with you and I love that despite the fact that our brains work in very different 
ways that we can have this beautiful collegiality in getting things done. And thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.